Welcome to the Living Wild Podcast. I'm Brent Philbin, and today we have an interesting crossover episode. This is an interview with Lynn Graft, who is the author of Start With Story, and he focuses on storytelling for entrepreneurs. Now, that isn't exactly what the Living Wild is always about, but we thought this interview was so good, we wanted to share it among all three of our podcast platforms. So the Wild CEO, Colin Stuckert, is involved. We do talk about wild foods on this show, and we make sure to go over some ancestrally appropriate topics as well. This is a much longer episode than you're used to, and if you're a listener of the Tribe Pod, you'll have heard this one, so you can skip it. But otherwise, please don't skip this episode because it is great, it's enthralling, and of course, you'd expect nothing less from the person who developed their entire career on telling a story. So learn about how he interviewed some of the industry giants, and when I say giants, I'm referring to giants. Maybe the creators of Dell or something, or maybe the creator of Starbucks. I don't know. You're going to have to find out on this episode of the Living Wild Podcast. All right. We're here with Colin Stuckert, of course, the host of The Ancestral Mind. That's me, and you're Brent. You're talking. Yeah, yeah, I'm Brent. Brent introduced me, who is also Brent. And we are here with Lynn Graft, who is the author of Start With Story, the sweet book that, if you're seeing the video, he dropped off for us right here. Looks awesome. The Entrepreneur's Guide to Using Story to Grow Your Business. Yeah. yeah. Welcome well, to the show. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Should I speak in third person? Lynn Graft here. Yes. <laughs> he is ready. For the whole show. And Colin has a question. Can he yes. interject? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Lynn would like to give his perspective on storytelling. Thank you very much. So I can already tell this is going to be a fun, interesting show. <laughs> Kicked it off the right way. I love third person. <laughs> There's so much I want to talk about with this because obviously being an entrepreneur, that's how we connected. You write Paleo effects. Yeah. Story is something I've studied for a long time. It's something that I feel like I still struggle with like feeling confident about it. Right. Mm. It's one of those things. Like I know that in some, in conversation, I can kind of tell my story, but when I try to take that from like, how do I turn this into a business project, whether it's a video, whether it's an email, whatever, like I feel like I struggle a little bit, at least with the confidence in it. And mm-hmm. I think a lot of entrepreneurs fall into that same thing. Yes. Like we know our story, but we don't really have the comments around like the storytelling aspects to know if we're kind of putting things in the right place. Right. I feel like that's a, that's, that's a common, I'm sure you've seen this in, cause you actually also do video production. And so you tell stories through video for entrepreneurs and like a lot of times they can maybe tell you the story, but they don't really know how to help you to translate that into a video, for example. And that might be something that you help them with. Yeah. Right. Absolutely. So let's just dive right into it. Like we're going to get into the book. We're going to get into, I also want to cover how you kind of wrote this, some of that process and what that was like. And a little bit into Austin, you're, you're local here in Austin. So you help a lot of entrepreneurs. I mean, is that your primary gig right now? Like you're helping entrepreneurs do video and storytelling pretty much? Yeah. Two predominant capacities. One is I'm a video producer. I've been doing that for 15 years and I've produced about 800 videos over the years. Wow. I've filmed about a thousand entrepreneurs and 500 or brand names because I was mm. generally doing it for media companies such as CNBC or Entre Magazine and then corporations, Microsoft, Dell, and then the startups themselves. A lot of companies, uh, you know, products that you've, especially here in Austin, products you probably drank or ate. I've done a lot of those stuff as well, but a lot of technology companies because that's where my background comes from. Were you always in Austin doing this? Uh, no, I, I was in LA when I was producing a television show and in Austin. And then I traveled a lot because I'm filming entrepreneurs on location. So New York, mm-hmm. Los Angeles, San Francisco, mm-hmm. Chicago, wherever the rat is where I would fly most of the time. So in the other capacity is I'm helping entrepreneurs create, tell, and share their story through the Storytelling for Entrepreneurs platform and the book that you talked about. I got an online course, uh, same type of element to help entrepreneurs create their story from scratch. That's mm-hmm. the name of that course. 
like the book, it basically takes you from zero, gives you a framework to uh, start from zero and then take the fundamentals of your background, much like you were saying, and how do you roll that up into a compelling yeah. dynamic story from that yeah. perspective? So curious, because uh, I've always been curious about this. How do people in video, Hollywood, whatever, how do they get work? Is it like somebody represents you or people just know about your work because they like read the credits and then like that guy did that video. I want to hire him. I've always been fascinated by, cause you always hear a lot of people say, like I've met a lot of people over the years that have like done these different projects. I'm like, who manages these people? Like how, like how do they get business or work? Like, cause I'm always thinking from a business, like how do I scale things? I kind of have to know like what's my client acquisition strategy so I can scale. I can put money into it or whatever. What is that like from like that kind of creative side of, of that business? You know, and if, if you want to be in television or film, it's, much more prudent to go to Los Angeles or New York. Just just to be around just like the you people. You need to be in yeah. the environment. That's where most of the production companies are. In New York, it's the media companies, more television, a lot of media type television. In mm -hmm. LA, it's film mm -hmm. and everything else. Uh, we produced a show out of Los Angeles and here, and it was incredibly hard to do it in Austin. There just wasn't enough talent. Mm. There wasn't enough writers. There yep. wasn't enough cinematographers. There wasn't enough post-production supervisors. All the elements that those credits that you roll at the yeah. end of a movie or film, they're just not a lot here. So we actually flew people in mm. to work on that show. It was not the best business decision because it was expensive, yeah. but uh, we wanted to produce a show out of Austin and Austin was still kind of a nascent film television community. It's, it's grown, matured since, since then. then. Yeah. So back to your question. So when you're, if you want to get in the business, you want to go to LA and then you just throw yourself into it. A lot of people have RTF, degrees for your television film. Austin, Texas has a great one top five program in the country. You'll go to Los Angeles and then you will hunt and work as a waiter or waitress, yeah. or you will valet or do whatever kids you're trying to break in. Mm -hmm. And most of the time in my business, you start out as a PA or an assistant doing whatever, yep. anything. And you're just trying to develop networks and you're trying to get seen and noticed so that when someone has another production, they'll hire you on. Hmm. And mo and usually you're doing that without credits. You're not getting uh, your name on the board, so to right. speak. You're not on IMDb. Yeah. And eventually you'll work your way up. You'll start out as a PA and you might get into a grip or you might get into an AC, which is assistant camera. And you're just kind of work your way up the thing or produ producer assistant. You've been actor, actress's assistant. There's a lot of different ways to kind of work your way into the industry. And most of the time it's just flat out. It's luck. It's hard work. It's perseverance. It is a brutal, brutal space to start from the beginning, even with a degree with looks and talent because everybody wants to do it. And yeah. you have to be a master networker of some, I would imagine, oh, yeah. right? Yeah. Like, you got to, you need people to like you, like to think yeah. about you. Right. And, and those, you hear all those Hollywood stories where they lived on nothing on someone's couch working three jobs and it, because it's incredibly hard and yeah, it's expensive temp agencies yeah. or yeah, I didn't go that route. I just started blossoming into, I don't know. I kind of fell into it. My best friend had approached me, says she wants to do a television show about women CEOs raising capital in Texas in the high tech space. And I knew exactly what she meant because we had just come out of a startup that had done that. And she wanted to profile these women CEOs. And I'm like, sure, I'll help you. I didn't know anything about film mm -hmm. or television, but I started giving her five hours a week, 10 hours a week, 20 hours a week. And uh, we ended up getting a project, a paid project by the, from the University of Texas to do a profile piece on this guy by the name of Dr. George Kuzmetsky. He's a, one of the first billionaires in Texas. Mm. Incredibly sharp guy. The business school used to be named after him. And uh, he's up in his 80s. They wanted to go a legacy piece on him mm -hmm. for the IC Squared Technology Group out of Texas. And he happened to be my best friend, Ingrid's, Men mentor. 
So hmm. she's going to interview him on camera, a profile piece about him for the university. And while we're filming him, he goes, Ingrid, you know, to get a perspective of my legacy, you should interview some of my other mentees beside yourself. And Ingrid's like, yeah, let's do it. Who should that be? And he goes, well, let's do um, Michael Dell and Red McCombs. <laughs> and wow. Okay. This is my first paid video project ever as a producer. I don't know what I'm doing. I literally don't. I'm just, I found a guy who used to be a director on Dallas and dynasty shows from the seventies. And he helped me do this one production. And I'm like, Oh my God, we got to film three billionaire entrepreneurs mm -hmm. in my first paid project ever. And I tell you, they're very different individuals. And it was so invigorating when I got done with that. I just wanted to go tell everybody about this. Yeah. Oh, you got to hear how Michael Dell started. And he used to hide his, all these computer equipment from his parents in his bathtub whenever they come visit him in his dorm room. Or Red McCombs, who grew up in Spur, Texas, his parents gave him like a quarter to take a bus to the school. And he arrived at the campus with a, with a dime in his pocket after that. And then he had Dr. Kosmetsky, who was two PhDs, who had two Learjets, who used to fly around the country managing his companies, just very different, diverse backgrounds that had all become self-made billionaires. And that was 15 years ago. I've been on that track ever since. So what happens after, it sounds like the first project led into that project and led into interviewing these other billionaires. But then like, let's say you wrap that project up and you're like, now I'm a producer, videographer, whatever your title was. How do I get other gigs? Do you go out and like pursue them or do they kind of come inbound? That's another thing I've always been curious about. Yeah. So in the first days, it was definitely outbound. It was like, like just, I, I'll make a video. Exactly. Right. right. <laughs> the LSRs weren't a thing yet. Huh. So the cameras we were using were expensive, big, yep, bulky and problematic. You need mm -hmm. to know how to use them. Mm -hmm. They weren't like turn it on. Yeah. So you had to hire a camera operator. So we, I, we just kind of winged it. And Ingrid's a really good salesperson. We ended up getting a project with Microsoft. And it was, in terms of a business project, it was terrible. We lost money, but we got to do 25 videos filming 15 small business owners featuring Microsoft products, mm -hmm. Excel, Word, Access at the time. And uh, it, it was, that was my first real-time of being a producer mm -hmm. because I, it was, I had three days. We had to shoot all a bunch of different locations and make 25 deliverables, mm -hmm. which is a lot with, with the yeah. money that we had. Yeah. And a short period of time. Yeah. And I, I actually hired, I, this is, I'm a producer. I'd hired a field producer to help me. Someone, I, I didn't even know what that meant, but she told me she would help me on a daily basis. And we brought in this guy from LA to be the director of the shots. And looking back, it was a dumb decision. We didn't need it, but mm -hmm. I didn't know what I was doing still. And the, the first day of the shoot, it was super intense. We're at three locations, a lot of different setups and shots. And we're trying to make these two, three minute videos, three a day, which is a lot. And he was just freaking out the entire day. He's a typical young LA director wannabe type guy. He hadn't, didn't have any chops to his name at all, but he'd done a lot more than I had. So I thought he knew what he was doing. And he did, he, he had some insight, but he was so pissed because we're trying to go so fast as a producer. I didn't know at the time, but you're about, you're managing budgets yeah, and money. managing timeline. You're yep. managing people. You're like, we got to go. We got to yep. go. Director's like, no, we want to make it beautiful. I'm like, no, right. we got to go. At the end of the day, we sat down at dinner at this restaurant here in Austin, Texas. I'll never forget. We're sitting there around the table, me and my friend Teal, who was my field producer, me, the producer, and then this guy, the, the director. And he says, I can't believe we did that today. We're not going to do that tomorrow. I'm like, yes, we are. I don't have, we don't have a choice. We, we don't have much money. There is no, there is no other money. We don't have any resources. He got so upset. He stood up, he stepped over the fence as we were sitting outside and just walked away. 
walked away. <laughs> and at least you don't have to pay him. <laughs> For that reason, I'm out. <laughs> and Teal and I look at each other and we're like dumbfounded. Like, did he just walk away in the middle of the street? He just walked off in the distance. And she goes, well, I guess you're the producer director now. Huh. And I learned the next two days really what it meant mm. to be a director, producer, and and manage everything about it on a limited budget in a short period of time with a big client. This is Microsoft. Yeah. And they were going to throw these things through their online systems. There wasn't really Facebook at the time, things like that. And it was an amazing experience for me, probably mm-hmm. one of the most challenging. And I didn't know what I didn't know. Mm-hmm. So it was fine. I'm like, let's just bulldoze through it like a bulldog and we'll figure it out. And the craziest thing out of that, the videos were okay, but there was one in particular. It was about this production company here in town that had gotten a project through Ford to do a IMAX movie, 40 minute IMAX movie about horses around the world. And it was this beautiful cinematic piece because they'd mm-hmm. flown to four continents and filmed mm-hmm. all these horses and everything else. And it was really cool. We got to show this people doing it and we had their footage. We had our footage. And there's this one part that he's the, the founder of this little IMAX video production company says, we've got this Microsoft server and he opens the door and he shows us and it's sitting on a chair like this and it's just sitting there with the cat five cables running out mm-hmm. and, it, and he goes, I don't know what it does and it doesn't know what we do, but it helps us talk to our people around the world. Hmm. That's all he said. It was just kind of that open door, but allows us to make these great movies. And the COO of Microsoft saw that video and he goes, whoever did that video, I want them. Hmm. And I just got goosebumps. (laughs) Think of it this way. I did 25 videos for around $50,000 back then, which wasn't a lot because of the production. We were upside down. We lost money, but we didn't care. We're like, Mm -hmm. we got Microsoft's a client. I did four videos for them for over uh, like a f- almost four hundred thousand dollars. Wow! And I got to fly to four countries and show these amazing videos, and it was just one of the most inspiring projects I've ever done. It it was luck, it was chance, right time, right place. You manufacture, no, you're skipping you a big piece of that. Luck, no, 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 no. You made you made your own luck there. You're not giving yourself enough yeah. credit because you're straight up saying, "I didn't know how to do this shit," but you did it. But I did it. Like you, you're like, I, "Okay, I didn't know what I didn't know how to do, but I knew I'd figure it out." And that's the piece that so many people are missing when they go into business or when they do something and they start something. You'll hear somebody be like, well, I don't, I'm not a, yeah, I'm not they, a consultant. Find reasons why I don't know how to not, do a podcast yeah. or whatever. Yeah. You know, I just do it. it, it and I'm glad you brought that part up because this, this will speak directly to this. So I was an engineer by trade, got my MBA in marketing, but I'm not a writer. I never liked writing. I was always really good in math. That's why I became an engineer, but English grammar, ah, not my thing. I'm sitting on a plane, flying to Microsoft, trying to figure out how to write a script for one of these videos. Mm. I'm really fast and agile in Excel. So I watched the footage that we shot of one of the small business owners, and I transcribed it myself into Excel. And I put lines in Excel because I, I can move things around super yeah. fast. And that's how I wrote my first script was mm. in Excel. <laughs> and I don't know anybody else I've ever met that's done that. But it was Excellent. easy for me. And that just it's like it worked. It was fast. And it was kind of a way for me to visualize almost a storyboard in Excel. And then I just used that footage and we made the first one of the first videos for that project. Think think about your mic drop director buddy that ran into the sunset. (laughs) You're doing what? You're making your scripts and what? It would blow his mind. But then like it got the job done. Well, you also didn't go to Microsoft the next day and be like, our director quit and come up with all these BS excuses. Right. Oh, yeah. We need more time. That's what a lot of people would do. They'd find reasons why they can't do things instead of reasons why they just need to get it done. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And like, that's a huge lesson there. Which makes you really desirable to be hired. So 
I love talking about the movie business. Like it's probably like childhood curiosity or whatever. Right. But director and producer, I didn't know what those meant until maybe like a year ago. And mm-hmm. I'm not, I'm 34 now. Right. So like, I've always just had these weird ideas about like what those actually do. I kind of started piecing together that producer deals with budgeting and like almost like the, um, like CFO of the thing or whatever. I'm still a little fuzzy on director. Can you paint a picture for us real quick? Just, just to find director a little bit. And then like, what does that look like? What are they doing in a movie? Cause I think a lot of people don't really know and directors get a lot of credit. Is that worth, should they, should they not? Is it too much? Like, is it one of those things like it's a little puffed up too much or directors have a lot to do and it just kind of depends, you know, it's all that it's in because I haven't done any true films. I've worked, yeah. I've done long format stuff such as television and documentaries, but I haven't done films, but I will say this. I didn't know that for a long time either. I was just doing it. And the director has more of the artistic vision of bringing the idea to life. So like the CEO kind of very the much CEO of the simple. project, yeah. whatever. Yeah. However, the CEO is responsible for everything, right? The producer really is responsible for all the moving logistics and operational aspects about budget, timelines, casting, you know, everything else. They manage all that. So yeah. the director can focus on the creative, visual, yeah. touchy feels. But at the end of the day, it's the director's name that most people think about when they think of a movie. They yep. don't think of the producer. Mm-hmm. Even though you still get credits, you get best producer awards. Right. It's the director that definitely gets, gets all the credit like the yeah. ceo in that front because it's their vision being brought to life from that perspective but like for instance i was talking to the guy from the folks this video i do a lot of cpg consumer package goods videos now and if i need this to be really cinematic and they have enough budget i will ask a director to come on set with me even though i know what to do and how to do it directors the ones i hire have better eyes than mm-hmm. i do they know what's going to work in the edit because I don't edit. Yep. And a lot of the edit, ed directors I hire do edit. So they know cinematically what the shots should look like. If there's going to be text on screen, like in some of your videos, we, we need to have negative space. They'll think of those things. Yeah, right. As a producer, you don't have a lot of time to worry about that. You're like, hey, we've got 30 minutes before the sun goes down. We need to be at this location right. now. Oh, my camera guy has to leave at seven. <laughs> right. Yeah, I've got to let. I've got to cut that person. Mm-hmm. Um, we're shooting on location. These dogs are barking. What can we do with these dogs? Like that's what the producer's taking care of. All that stuff. Mm-hmm. So you don't. As much as you'd love to do the creative and all the cool, mm-hmm. beautiful cinematic stuff, it's better to have the producer focus on that. And then there's a bunch of different kinds of producers. Well, I was going to ask that because, like, you see executive producer, you see assistant ex- executive producer, oh. you see like this producer, and I'm like, how many of them are actually? like on set, right? Aren't some kind of maybe the finance guys and some are like the operational guys or there's all of like, I just was meeting with one, one of my buddies that I hired as a PA and on a, a production assistant on the Microsoft project. Mm-hmm. PA is what that stands for. And he now is, he's a challenge producer. So you see those show like a cooking show. He's oh, working, he's working yeah. on oh, okay. a lot of those things and there's yep. a specific Chops. challenge. I love chops. So he does just the challenges for kid shows and cooking shows mm. so that he produces one of those challenges. So there for every show, there's multiple producers depending on what the needs are from that perspective. Wow. That's some fascinating stuff. Yeah. Well, let's get into the book a little bit. So you have this book, start with story and it sounds like you had been working on it for three years. You said, I mean, what was the impetus? Why did you just feel like you had to share? Like you want entrepreneurs to be able to tell their story. You want to promote why they should share their story. And so you started working on a book because you were seeing it, like maybe you were inspired by the, C- the CEOs and the people you were interviewing. Like what was the impetus for the book? What was the timeline for the book? And then how did that lead you to today? Yep. What are you doing? 
six or seven years into my career as a producer, people started asking me, hey, tell me about you know filming Howard Schultz from Starbucks or Michael Dell or all these people. They asked me just about the experience and they asked me about the story and video and production. There was a lot of asks mm-hmm. for me either coaching or to go speak or just go spend time, mentor yeah. folks. And that started, got me thinking, you know, you know how it is. People say, you should write a book on it. And I heard that for years. I'm yep. like, ah, I don't really want to write a book. I, don't, I, I know there's no money in book. My, yep. We own a publishing company. I'm like, ah, we'll see. But then what happened was people started asking me specifically about story and storytelling. And I started speaking specifically on that. And one of the things I realized, I started buying books and trying to learn as much as I could about storytelling because mm-hmm. I, I wasn't trained traditionally in that way. I'm mm-hmm. writing scripts on Excel spreadsheets. So, you mm-hmm. know, and the problem I had is there's some great books, but most of them were geared towards manuscripts for books or scripts for movies or plays Play, yeah. or marketing folks. And, you know, Robert McKee's got this great book called story. It's, you know, massive, like two or three inches thick. You've got uh, the hero's journey, which a lot of people know about Joseph Campbell, Joseph Campbell. Yep. And, and you had to, there was a lot of things that were problematic for me. Number one, the hero's journey is 11, 13 steps. And most people have not gone through the hero's journey. Hero's journey is the basis for a lot of Hollywood movies. And Robert McKee is throwing around terms such as the protagonist, the antagonist. Mm-hmm. And you have to get characters and you have to use the, de- you have to know when to put in the climax and a denouement. And I'm looking these terms up. I didn't know the difference between antagonist and protagonist. Hmm. So I kind of threw up my hands. I'm like, screw this. I don't know what's going on. Mm-hmm. I don't know if I could teach it. And I was like, ah, I don't know. And then right about that time, people said, you should write a book. And I got asked to speak on it again. And then I saw Gary Keller speak. Gary Keller is, Gary Keller is the founder of Keller Williams, yep. which is the number oh, one okay. real estate company real in the estate. world now. They just <clears throat> passed Century 21 last year. I filmed him for an entrepreneur event here in Austin. And he had just come out with this book called The One Thing. And I believe it's on the bookshelf behind you. All right. Yeah. yeah. We, we have our team. It's going to be a rich read, library. As well. Yeah. <laughs> and it just right time, right place. I was so open to something like that. And he just, it was, he was promoting the book and what was in it and why he wrote it and how it related to his story and how it helped him become so successful. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, you know, I've been thinking about writing a book. The one thing I was like, maybe my one thing should be to write the book but not because I wanted a book, because I wanted to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. Yeah. I'm one of those people that until I figured it out, I thought about what I wanted to do with my life every day. I wanted to know what my mission, my calling was. Every single day I'd wake up thinking about that, I'd go to sleep thinking about that. Every time I talk to somebody, man, what am I going to do with and my how, life? And how long you've been producer doing videos and stuff? Because oh, sounds like I, you're pivoting a little bit, but you be, you're not new to this. No, at that time, that was I'm nine years in. <laughs> and wow. I'm like, I, don't, I knew I was going to be a producer for a long time, but I'm like, I don't want to make a production company. I'd already yeah. done that. I had a 32-person company, and we were doing well, making some figures. And I'm like, I just don't like this. It's really hard. And I just didn't want to go to Hollywood or New York. Yeah. I wanted to stay in Austin at the time. Anyways, I saw the one thing for me became, I'm going to work on my book every single day because I think it's going to help me figure out mm-hmm. what I'm meant to do in my life. So it became a pathway to find my calling. And it, it actually did turn out that way. I worked on the book every day, first thing in the morning, first hour, around five or 6 a.m. for at least 60 minutes, but sometimes four or five hours. And on day 31, the book unfolded for me. I'm like, oh yeah, I get it. I see it. Mm-hmm. So I just kept going with it, kept going with it. And then uh, we'll come back to the story later on when I ended up hiring a publishing company. is right about the time I saw the vision of what I was meant to do with my life, probably three years into it. 
And that was, mind you, working on it every single day. Two to three years into the book. Yeah. And so what, what was that vision? Like, how are you able to articulate that in words? Oh, yeah. For me is I want to create the number one entrepreneurial storytelling platform in the world. So much like Rosetta Stone is to learn a language, I want storytelling for entrepreneurs to become your destination to learn how to create, tell, and share your story for any entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. So it will be a series of creating content so that regardless of your learning mechanism, whether you're visual, audio, kinesthetic, mm-hmm. I'll have tools, techniques, courses, books, events, a lot of things to help you do just that. So that is my vision and I'm kind of, it's a 10 year journey and I'm a couple years into it now, two or three years into it. Oh, wow. That's a lot of, a lot of, I mean, what, the one lesson of I'm nine years in and I'm so asking myself every day, what do I want to do with my life? And I think there's nothing wrong with that. I think the idea that like you're 18, you go to college or whatever, you figure out in three to four years real quick what you're supposed to do. And then you get that job and like, yeah, you're good. You know, until I'm 60 and I retire, that's it. Right. Like, yeah. but I think having that beginner's minds that just being willing to keep asking yourself that question. I think that's how we really f- kind of create life versus just like respond to life or some r- rote path that is already there. There's a know? big difference between what am I going to do with my life? And this is what I'm doing with my life. And, or, and, or what should I do with my life? You know, what like could I do with my life? Somebody yeah. who wakes up in the corporate monster that every morning they're like, really, this is what I'm doing. And it's yeah. the question rather than the starting with one and going forward with, what am I doing? Yeah, super powerful. You to know, ask what, it really. as, as you guys know, there was a void in my life until I figured that out. Hmm. I mean, legitimately, physically, and emotionally and spiritually felt that void until the vision unfolded. And the vision, it wasn't like overnight. Mm-hmm. It was months and then years of unfolding. And then one day it just kind of clicked. And that whole saying to create, tell, and share your story. Oh, I can do that. I'm doing that anyways. I just need to make a platform as big as Rosetta Stone or bigger to help others. And now I don't have that void. I have different needs in my life, but I no longer wake up thinking about it. Mm-hmm. I'm not stressed about it. Mm-hmm. And to your point, I remember I became an engineer because I was good in math. Yep. That's it. That is the, that's the reason I why. look back. <laughs> yep. I'm like, check that box. There's computer science or engineering. I like engineering better. I'll do that. Yeah. I didn't know what it was. Mm-hmm. And I remember sitting in my office, looking out the window one day, coming off the manufacturing floor and I'm, and I'm in a cubicle exactly what you think. I had a window though. Mm-hmm. I'm like, what am I doing? Mm-hmm. This is ridiculous. And I quit my job and I became a ski instructor. Hmm. Oh, nice. <laughs> that, that came out of nowhere. That came out of left field. I, I was living in Phoenix and I had taught part-time in undergrad and, and while in Phoenix. And I decided I want to live in Colorado. I want to teach skiing mm-hmm. and live in the mountains. So I got, I sold everything. How long did you do that for? Uh, it what supposed to be a year turned out to a couple of years. And then you just found your way into production. Oh, no, that? at that point I knew I was going to get my MBA at some point. Okay. So it was like, let's go teach skiing. I'll look at schools. Yeah. And so I went to Breckenridge, lived there and taught at Keystone and a basin. And then I decided to keep going because it was a blast. And I lived in my car and just traveled around the country and they ended up in heavenly. And I taught there in, hmm. in, in Nevada. And then I was, I started applying to grad schools and I got into Texas and that so brought me here. I have a skiing question. So I've never been skiing, Yeah. but I've seen the South park episode where they go like, pizza french fry is it is it like that is that how you talk oh people? yeah 100 100 and there's a, there are multiple and in the same way you learn right people are typically mostly visual mm-hmm. audio second kinesthetics third so if i teach you i said i want you to put your feet in the pizza so they visually get that they hear me say that and then i will also add feel your toes go inward so that's the kinesthetic part so they're feeling it they're hearing it and then i show them with my skis and then my hands 
And it's interesting in storytelling, I do that a lot too. And, and a lot of entrepreneurs don't utilize this because they don't think that we're all just audio people, right? Right. You've got a product here, a lot of products, and you're able to visually show them. You're able to talk about them. You're able to let people taste them, hold them, touch them. So I always tell founders, think about all the senses that we have, yeah. because the more senses that you hit someone with, the more likely they are to resonate with them in mm-hmm. one way, shape, or form. So uh, that question of pizza and things like that, and there was another one called motorboat. That's to help them turn a little boat. Oh, I didn't, they didn't cover that one yeah. in South Park. So I'm <laughs> Well, on that point, the well, senses, you know, we met at Paleo FX, which yeah. we've gone to every year now. We just get such good feedback and to be able to interact with customers, talk to them. Cause I've, obviously we're e-commerce based company, right? Now we have the coffee bar. So we get a little bit more of the in-person interaction, but it's always hard to translate like a food product, right? From a screen to like selling it to a person thousands of miles away over the phone or, or their website, right? Like it's always a challenge. And so I think that's actually something I need to think about more is like use the census. And that's obviously why when you watch cooking shows on YouTube or any platform, they're always tasting and like, oh, this is amazing. Mm-hmm. Like there's some channels where this one guy, he travels, he's got like 3 million followers and all he does is eat things and go, mm, that's awesome. Mm, like this <laughs> over and over and over for the whole thing and people eat it up. They, I mean, pun intended. They don't eat it up, but they love that kind of content, right? One bite. right. So Everyone I'll give rules. an example like this. So here's a way to do that with audio. So I could be talking like this, having a good time. What's going on? Welcome to the show here with Colin and everything else. Or I can bring it in, talk a little bit slower. Think about the sensuous smell. You see the simmering of your green matcha latte in the morning boiling. So you can mm-hmm. use the audio senses. And what's yeah. interesting, if, if you had a woman talking like that around three men, you would get aroused without even knowing it because it's a, it's a technique that's mm-hmm. been passed along for generations. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's the same thing with visual. When I shoot for CBG companies, I want it to be cinematic. I want it to be beautiful and look compelling and attractive because that makes a difference. And the same way on Instagram, we know photos that pop. Yep. It's because of lighting. Typically it's because the setup, but almost always because of lighting color colors pop that stimulates other senses. Mm -hmm. So this is part of what I teach about storytelling is you want to make sure that your product looks appealing, that you talk about it, that you're introducing other elements. And you've heard this famous phrase. I can't remember. It's, I don't know if it's Stephen King. I think he actually applied for someone as um, maybe it's Hitchcock. Don't, tell them that she screamed, show them yep. that she screamed. And I'm like, what the hell does that mean? Before I really started getting, I think it was Hitchcock. That said that think, actually, somebody yeah. famous yeah. for that. And it's because what you want to do, and, and let's, let's bring it back to an example that you're thinking about. You could say that green matcha latte is healthy for you. Mm-hmm. That's me telling you before, or yeah. you could say instead, um, you know, this particular person was struggling with their health. They're, they, they were getting sick all the time. They just didn't have enough nutrients. They were feeling bad, just not doing very well. Then they started having a green matcha every morning because it has 50 more or 60 more times the ingredients of green tea. And that person started feeling better every day. They started paying attention to what they were eating more. So rather than tell them it's just a healthy product, you're showing them still through audio mm-hmm. and text or whatever you're going to see, but you're stimulating the other senses so that now you're like, you're being drawn into that description and then instead of just re- or hearing something. So that's kind of what that means. There's a lot of other ways to do it, but that's the primary way, even when it's audio or text. So you, f- you focus on CBG, which is consumer packaged goods for a lot of people that don't know that um, physical products, let's say. I'm curious though, 
What about people that have brands around a service or like they're in fitness, right? Because we see, everybody sees that on Instagram. What is a way that people could tell their story or do things to showcase, you know, whether the product they're offering to their clients or I don't know, whatever their content is around, how could people get better at that around things that maybe are a little bit harder to touch or see or feel? Yep. So if we go back to, this is a fundamental principle that I teach in the book, in my course, when I'm coaching, when I'm mentoring, when I'm speaking, is that storytelling doesn't need to be this elaborate 13 step journey that you went through. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't need to be this character, protagonist, antagonist. What it usually boils down to, and health and wellness is a great example for this. Most people that get into health and wellness, whether it's fitness coaching, nutrition, people, psychological weight loss, it's because they had an event in their life that triggered them or put them in the path. And that is the, that is it. That is the secret to story. It's like, so what you want to do is you want to find that event that spoke to you. What caused you to go? The entrepreneurship is freaking hard. Oh yeah. Really hard. Why would you do this? (laughs) And it's because something drove you to pursue this idea because you had an event or an experience in your life. So at the heart of storytelling, from my perspective is there's an experience in your life that has a powerful meaning in relationship to your business. That was the trigger that either caused you to start the company or led you down the path that eventually got you here. Start there. That's your point of creating your story. Like if we go back to anybody in health and wellness, like for instance, a friend of mine, she became a fitness coach because she was obese mm-hmm. and she was sick and tired of always being sick and tired. People looking at her. Yep. She never felt great self-esteem issues. And she goes, there's got to be a better way. And she really wasn't that into fitness, but she heard this thing like 80%, 20%, it's 80% your diet, 20% fitness. She's like, what? Mm-hmm. She didn't believe that. So what did she do? She focused on 80% of her health and fitness and what she ate. And then she kind of worked out a little bit Mm -hmm. and it set her down this journey. And now she's a nutrition fitness coach of all things. And it's because what she does, she tells that own personal experience. And like, man, one of the great things when you share an experience like that, there's going to be people that it resonates with immediately. And they're going to come talk to you right after you speak or they're going to come up and they want to, they want to try your product or they want to get your card. You're going to know the speak, the people that it resonates with. And I always recommend focus on that experience that caused you to go down this path or triggered you to launch this business. And that is where the golden nuggets are. How do we do that though? Because I, for example, Wild Foods, my face isn't on the account that often, actually. Obviously, I think there's opportunity to share more of the story, to get on there a little bit more. But we also have a content team and we need to produce content and do different things. So like, how can we showcase you know, maybe my story plus the why, like why the company exists, which is very much rooted to my story, but also kind of a separate thing. Like our why and our mission are separate from me, but they they do originate from me, right? But they can still be something that stands on its own. What are some actual like strategies? Like obviously interviews, me talking, things like that, but there's gotta be things outside of that beyond just like the founder going on the camera all the time. Like, are there any strategies or things that you found that have worked to do that? I mean, maybe testimonials or interviewing customers or something. Like, I mean, what have you seen? In your space, you have one of the best vehicles possible. And that's because you have packaging. One of the entrepreneurs that I learned producing on is a gentleman by the name of Clayton Christopher. Oh, yeah. Clayton is the founder of Sweet Leaf Tea and Deep Eddie Vodka. And if you were to look on the back of his bottle, 
It has his signature and a short story about how they created Sweet Leaf Tea. And it was on every bottle. It was on the website. It was ever on any packaging that they had done. So they decided to turn their personal story into the brand, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And they had a cool story. They basically had decided he got his grandmother's recipe for sweet tea. And they used crawfish pots to boil the tea, pantyhose and pillowcases and garden hoses to filter it and put it in bottles. And they bought a drill at Home Depot so they could put the caps on top of the bottle. And that's kind of the story that was on the back of the bottle. So they used every time you saw the product, so to speak, you'd see that story and you'd see his signature. And he ended up selling that company for nine figures to Nestle. And then when they actually did um, his second company, Deep Eddy, they sold that company for nine figures to another company. And there's a lot of people says, no, I don't want to put my personal story on there. And, no, and I totally should. I, I granted, I get that. Mm-hmm. And they always say, yeah, what, go ahead. You, you could end up being like McAfee, the crazy security guy, McAfee software, oh, yeah. which is like the opposite of what You put happen. out a great video today. Mm. <laughs> that, that is one interesting character. So that could go wrong. And board members and advisors don't always like that. And at the same time, like people's like, nah, there's not a lot of people who can do that. I'm like, that's BS. Look at Sarah Spanks, the most successful yep. female billionaire and entrepreneur, what female entrepreneur in history. And if you go to her website, it's her story on there. The Spank story yep. is her personal story. She made that choice when she started Barry Orla and she's carried it that way. And she, it's 100% private, never spent any money on advertising. Mm-hmm. So it is 100% doable. Now, if you want to go back to and not to it, so, so one tip I'd recommend is share your story well, often. Well, on the back a little bit. A little bit. <laughs> it's down here. I need to probably put, put more. Yeah, there. if you were to see it, you'd see the difference between the Clayton story. It's front and center mm-hmm. um, from that perspective. And it became part of their brand. That's what they pitched because it was cute. Reporters liked it. Um, retailers yeah, liked it. Easy to remember it. It and understand. Yeah. Yeah. Grandmother's iced tea, that carried. So the story needs to have legs, mm-hmm. so to speak. So that's important. And I think yours does as well because a lot of people are very conscious about their health. Mm-hmm. They want to take care of themselves. They want to live long, productive, fruitful lives. So having a good story that evokes that emotion mm-hmm. At the end of the day, storytelling is all about emotion. So let's say you don't want to do that. So you're getting a little bit more into brand storytelling versus personal mm. storytelling. You want something, and I think you guys have done a really good job of this. And I know because I, I just, I don't know if you saw my Insta story. I did. From yesterday. Yeah. On my counter, I had nine freaking Wild Foods <laughs> products. I'm mm-hmm. like, Jesus, I'm addicted to this. Stuff. <laughs> because, you know, I bought that first product. I tried it at Paleo FX because I was testing out green matchas at the time, mm-hmm. a couple of years ago, and I really liked the way yours hit me. It was super smooth. It wasn't powdery. It wasn't like, uh-uh. um, it was earthy, which was what I was looking for. I mm-hmm. wanted something that tasted it and just nice and went down smooth. And that led to the next one. And I just liked the branding. I liked the idea. I liked the concept. So ultimately, what you're trying to do with your story is you're trying to relate to people on an emotional level. That is the secret to storytelling. I want to evoke some type of emotion in you that's going to make you want to listen to me, make you want to care, because the goal in storytelling is I want to make you feel a certain way. It's not to tell you to buy my product. Right. It's to get you to feel the way I want you to feel so you're going to want to buy the product. So if you feel through my story that I'm really conscious about every single thing that goes into my body, that I'm going to research the crap out of every ingredient into every product 
So I know it's organic. It's sourced from sustainably uh, locations and vendors that you're focusing on flavor just as much as the quality of the product and that you're building this set of products. I got a one-stop shop to get all my healthy supplements. And that starts speaking to me. And I like the look. I like the feel. So you're trying to figure out a way from a brand storytelling point of what can I put on my label? What story can I say on my podcast? What can I put on the website? When my email's going out, what am I sharing in such a way that's going to resonate with people from that perspective? Because ultimately, I've talked to a lot of neuroscientists and psychologists and sociologists as one doctor's name is, um, but the book is called Descartes' Error. Mm. And it talks about, a, uh, there was a brain surgeon that had a patient by the name of Elliot. Elliot was a really smart guy, successful businessman, family man, wife, two kids, and they discovered a brain tumor in his head. I think I've heard of, did, did they like cut his head? Yep. yep. They basically had to yep. operate on him and they removed the brain tumor successfully, came out of there healthy. He still scored the 98th percentile in all tests from a uh, smart standpoint but the part they removed in his brain was responsible for emotion and his life fell apart didn't he lose like motivation to do anything because he just didn't like care or something what he think i read about that what happened is he couldn't make decisions yeah yeah and so he just couldn't do anything (laughs) yeah he couldn't decide where to go to lunch what shirt to wear what pin to use simple basic things we had to make a decision on he couldn't do them he just didn't have an emotional connection to things and it was that discovery that flipped a lot of the neuroscience folks kind of like people knew that intuitively before that that was like the first big time study research that had been done on taking the part of the brain responsible for emotion cutting it off Mm. and then a person's life is not the same anymore and there's been a lot of studies since then but the bottom line is we make decisions based on emotions oh yeah and that's why you want to connect with people on an emotional level so that they're going to be influenced in the way you want them to feel and have the same emotions, so they're going to make a decision in your favor. Well, yeah, and all the classical, what is it, economist, um, you know, uh, the invisible hand, who was that that talked about that? Um, Um, Like 1700s, 1800s guy. forgot his name. Adam, Adam Smith. Adam Smith, yeah. A lot of them were like, people buy products and services from the rational side of their brain, and they make decisions that are most economical or most beneficial or most utility or whatever. And then I think it was probably Kahneman that came in to talk about how, like, that's not accurate at all. People actually make decisions that are really dumb logically because they're operating from a place of emotion, Yeah. right? Um, so I think I think story is probably one of those things where you can really trigger and connect with people in that way. And I think the best brands that really people like know, like, and trust and really buy from, whether it's Apple or Nike or, or any of these bigger brands, mm-hmm. is like people kind of understand the, the value proposition because they also kind of understand the story. You know, I know you talked about Starbucks. Now, this is something I'm curious about because I've read Howard Short's book, the couple of them, I've read a couple of them. So I kind of have an idea of the story. A lot of people don't know the original story, but what did Starbucks do from a brand story perspective, right? To become like known for what they're known for. Because if you, ha- if you ask me to, quantify that or, or, or verbalize that? I don't think I could, mm-hmm. but a lot of people still understand certain things about Starbucks. Is there maybe something that you've observed, whether talking to Howard or the, or the, you know, the origins of the brand, like how have they been able to do that? Do you have any insight on that? Yeah. When I, when I was trying to figure out how to articulate, how to come up with an idea for a story for the book and in my own communication processes, it was Howard's story that um, brought it that uh-huh, mm-hmm. kind of moment for me. Mm-hmm. So what happened was he was working in New York for a kitchen supply company and they sold espresso machines. And there's this company in 
Seattle that was buying the bejesus out of the machines. So he's like good sales guy, VP of sales. He flew out there to Seattle and got to meet these guys. And this was an espresso bean shop in Seattle. So they didn't sell espresso. They sold beans to make coffee and espresso. And he's like, so what are you guys doing? He says, well, we make coffee so people can taste the espresso before they buy the beans. So he quit his job in New York, went to go work for them. And he loved it. He said, this is amazing. Mm-hmm. Really enjoyed the coffee experience. And just, he, he, he like coffee was cool, but he just started to fall in love with it. Long story short, he flies to Milan to a coffee slash kitchen utensil espresso conference, whatever they do in Italy. Those one of those big things. <laughs> and this is a three or four day conference. And one of the days of the conference, instead of taking a taxi, decided to walk to the conference and he's going through the back alleys of Milan and he comes across something he'd never seen before. And it was an espresso bar and he, it was something that caught his eye. He smelled it. So he walks up to this thing and he sees and hears and experiences everything about this particular place. And you could hear the expression of being, ah, the beans grinding and people like grande, latte, latte, selling out these Italian names. And there was a couple romantically engaged in the corner. There's a guy reading a book. There's someone listening to music, someone playing, and then there's some other people just drinking and at the, at the coffee bar. And he goes, oh my God, we need to bring this experience back mm. to the United States. So he goes back to Seattle talks to the founders of the coffee bee company goes, look, we need to create espresso bars. This is going to be a thing. And so the concept of Starbucks was never about coffee. It was, it was about the experience that he had in Milan, seeing that espresso bar, hearing it, tasting it, feeling the vibe Mm -hmm. that was there. Mind you, there weren't coffee companies. What year was this? Oh, this is the 70s. So this is like, you get coffee at like a diner. A diner. There wasn't yeah. any was coffee diner. shops, right? Coffee shops yeah. were diners. Yeah. They're like, you know, not the most pleasant truck right. stop type coffee. Right, right, right. Black coffee and everything else. So when he shared that with me on camera, I went back and watched. So to really learn about storytelling, I went back and forget about, I forgot about all the books and all the classes that I took on storytelling from an academic or playwriting transcript perspective. I said, screw that. I'm not going to learn any of that. Hmm. I went back to the entrepreneurs and I started asking them, but it was when I went back and rewatched the tapes from my interview of him for American Made. That was a show we did for CNBC. Mm -hmm. And he talks about Starbucks was all about creating an experience that you're going to love and it will be the same everywhere you go. The coffee will be the same, the look, the feel, the names you're going to hear, the taste will be the same. Everything will be this experience that you're going to have. And he called it the third place. Yeah. So the first place is the home. The second place was the work. We're going to create an espresso bar, which is going to be the third place. And that is the secret Hmm. to Starbucks. And for me, it was like what he did was he used whenever he wanted to raise money or to tell his founders at the time to let him open a bar, he ended up um, leaving the company. He, he, they let him buy, actually, so- Didn't the, he buy like the, the coffee bean business then turn it into so what? Something? So what happened was it, the, the name of the company he worked for was called Starbucks. That was the coffee bean company. Mm. He started an espresso bar called Il Geronato or something like that. And he separated from the company. They let him take that one and another one. And eventually he bought the name Starbucks back from them. Mm. So the coffee bean of Il Giornato became Starbucks. It's like a Ray Kroc story. <laughs> Basically the original founders of McDonald's did not become the billionaires. <laughs> yep, right. <laughs> so those guys went off and did their, because they didn't want to do espresso beans. Yeah. They didn't want to be espresso bars. They just want to make beans. So yeah. he went up and do that. But what he used that experience of Milan 
to craft the vision for what Starbucks would be, to raise money, to recruit people to work for them, to the press, we're going to open up these coffee espresso bars all over the country. It was this Which was vision. a new and unique thing. Nobody yeah. was doing this. And he got a lot of no's. I think remember talking about he went to like 80 banks or something and nobody would give him money. Nobody for a while. would. No, yeah. he took a lot, of, a lot of time to get that yeah. going. But to me, I was like, that's it. That's how you create a story to share an experience you had that had a meaningful relationship to you that made you want to do something amazing. And that's the core carnival story. Hmm. So I don't know how far we want to go with this, but I've been thinking while you're saying this, that there's a dark side to this too. You can use an amazing story to create the fire festival, or you can use an amazing story to create Theranos, which is basically that is what created that company was her story, Mm -hmm. which is kind of, which is kind of nuts. I was actually just watching the documentary like literally two days ago. I read the book. So bad blood, which was written about Theranos. That was a good one. And um, the book was good. I'm getting into the documentary, but I mean, that it shows you the power of story. Yeah. Right. Like the average street hustler that sling in things or whatever, those guys are really good salesmen. But what does that mean? They're really good at telling stories of some yep. way, right? Like if you can tell somebody a story, it always reminds me of the teach a man to fish and he'll fish or whatever. It's like tell someone a story and they'll just like love you forever or something. Yeah. Like there's got to be some line there. Like because <laughs> when you can really tell a story to someone and they really are captivated, there's a certain kind of trust. And I bet you this goes back into some of the science stuff. Like evolutionarily, this is how humans pass down knowledge over generation over generation before we were writing anything. How do you think humans survive in the wild where a certain plant you would eat, you would die? And telling your kids or whatever, not eat that plant or not go there. Or this area where you're always going to get jumped by a big cat that's going to eat you. Don't go there, obviously. Like we had to have um, these stories and myths and mythology that we created to kind of help teach the next generation, you know, and that's how humans really dominated the globe. Yeah, explain something we didn't understand. Yeah. What's interesting, let me me share a little bit about the science. I talked to this guy by the name of Dr. Paul Zak. He's one of the leading neuroscientists and has a company in California, which works with movie theaters, production companies, advertising companies, specifically on how to use story to get people to go to the movie or to buy things. Mm. I mean, that's what he does for a living. Good stuff and really nice guy. So anyway, so talking to him and other people, because I'm trying to figure out why story was so powerful. So it's been every culture in the world has a history of storytelling yes. yep. to your point. So spot on with that. The second point was if I tell you a fact or piece of information, I'm going to trigger two parts of your brain. But if I share a story with you, a compelling story, I'm going to trigger six to seven parts of your brain. Do you know the differences between the parts? Like what are the two and what are the six? So the the two have to do with language interpretation and one Mm. is uh, some type of function type thing. That's the milligium. I I can't even pronounce these things. But once I introduce a compelling story to you, what's happening is I'm trying to trigger things in your brain that make you feel or sense what's going on. Mm -hmm. And so what happens, these chemicals get released. So if, and what, What's really cool about this is storytelling comes down to chemicals is what I've Hmm. surmised in 10 years of hardcore research on this is that cortisone is the adrenaline chemical that gets released that has kept us alive. Stress hormone, yeah. If I want to get your attention, I want to go after cortisol. So when I tell you a good story, an adrenaline pumping story, cortisol gets released in your brain. So that's good. You want someone's attention, number one. Dopamine is the drug that makes you want more of something. It's like that feel and the feel good. Like yep. that. And then there's oxytocin, which is Dr. Paul Zach is known for discovering. It's called the love hormone. This is what we are basically of uh, scientists have discovered that we are social in nature. Mm-hmm. We want to be 
with each other. And the reason is in the, in the tribal days, if you were ostracized from the tribe, you would die. You could not yep. survive as Who's talked about that? Wait, Ryan? what show is this? Is this an ancestral mind or I think so. tribe? Oh, boy. So we are drawn to want to be with other people. And if you can trigger oxytocin, yep. that is the one that really gets people in it. So when if you tell a good, compelling story and if you're releasing all those chemicals, what's crazy is that the mind starts, if I'm telling you a great story and it's resonating with you and it's called the mirror effect. And there's a guy who has a lab in New York that's been able to study this in real time using MFR imaging. So they have people come into a room, they have a storyteller and they have people listening to the story and they put these brain centers on them. So when they come in and there's nobody talking, there's no matching pattern between the brains at all. The brains are just flying all over mm. the different things. There's nothing like, but the minute she starts telling a good compelling story, the brain starts syncing up and the mm. wavelengths start matching to one another and the mm. same parts of the brain start becoming activated and it's called the mirror effect. So if you, you've, we've all experienced it when you go see a really good movie and there's an action point and you start tensing up. I mean, this is fiction, you know, you, you fly, mm -hmm. yeah. and you've probably you maybe even seen the movie again. Oh, yeah, you're yeah. watching again and you're still getting tensed up or mm -hmm. it's emotional and you start crying or you're laughing because they're laughing mm -hmm. and your brain is syncing up with the storyteller. Mm -hmm. And that is part of the real power it comes back to that. So you, you want to know why people tell stories because we're triggering these chemicals that makes us relate to one another in such a way that you get me. In such a way, you understand my problem or my need or someone that I know has the same problem or need that you have. And I want to share with them my product idea or anything like and that. And this is a survival advantage that our species has created. So oxytocin is also triggered by touch primarily. Mm. So it sounds like story and is probably the, the other way where you really have a connection with people to release oxytocin yep. in lieu of touching. And then like, you know, friends and family, you touch them, but a stranger, you don't really cross that like touch, no touch barrier until you're really close with them. Right. So that's kind of an interesting way of like how somebody tell you a story that you don't know is the fastest way to probably cross that barrier to become more like, I really feel like I know this person or I like them or whatever. And it reminds me of one of my favorite shows, Halt and Catch Fire on AMC. Mm -hmm. It is absolutely one of the best shows. I don't even know why it's that great. Everybody should watch it. It's amazing. I think it's the four seasons. When that show ended, there was this feeling I had one of the main characters. Okay, okay. Yeah. Whoa, 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 whoa. I can't okay. spoil it. Okay. No spoilers. What are you okay. doing? So the show ended, let's just say that. The show ended and I was, I felt like almost sad in my stomach. Like some people say sick in your stomach, but it was like a combination of like sick in my stomach and sadness because I felt like I had, I was losing a bunch of friends. Like I had, there was such a connection I had mm -hmm. to the main characters that I felt like it's just like, like, let's say you're moving from your hometown. You're never gonna see your friends again or whatever. You don't think you are like, that was the feeling I had. Cause I'm like, there's no more seasons. I don't get to see them anymore. <laughs> like I was legitimately sad and I think the reason I think it was one of the greatest shows because of probably like oxytocin and the storytelling. And I was able to connect with the character so well that a lot of people probably wouldn't connect with the show the same way, whatever, for whatever reason, it really connected and resonated with me. And I had this deep connection with the actual characters. Like that's really fascinating when you really break it down, like actually physically, you, you know, you know, one of the things I think you've done a good job, even when, when I just met you and you're talking about losing weight, fasting and you're talking about the struggles of entrepreneurship on on your instagram stories mm -hmm. and in your newsletter and now on the podcast for things is that there is a one of the fastest way to connect with people is being vulnerable yep it's by sharing things that you maybe wouldn't have at a younger age and it allows you to immediately connect with people in a way that is really difficult like it's it's hard to make friends with people but like me and you 
we're, I'm, I started intermittent fasting a year ago. You just started this year. Like next time I see you, I'm going to ask you about fasting. Yep. It's going to be an instant connection that we're always going to have because you shared that with me. I was talking this last weekend. I was running and I came across a woman and her dog was drowning. And I went out there and Whoa. we tried to save it and the dog died. Jeez. And, you know, some of the private messages I got from that, from people I'd never heard of in a long time. Mm. And it's because that was really hard for me. I love animals. I love dogs. And it was just traumatic. And I had a difficult time for a few hours with that. But then I came to terms with it. And I I felt the dog gave me a gift in the sense that to really focus on what's precious in life. And we never know when it's going to be taken away from us. And it it made me think. It made me take a step back. And it was interesting. So I shared that on Facebook Mm because I just, I wanted to just get it out. Mm -hmm. And I wanted to share what, the one takeaway I had, and I felt so bad for the woman that lost her dog. And she, I would have been a mess. She held up really strong. I was barely holding myself up. But so the minute I share that story with someone, anybody that owns or loves a dog or had one in their life, I mean, we're mano y mano from now on. It's because I'm sharing some, that's tough. It's really hard to speak about. It's probably spiking oxytocin. It's probably the same effect. You know, vulnerability is like, you're kind of trusting somebody to receive the thing you're giving them. It's what I've learned, because I've thought about this a lot. Vulnerability implies trust to the receiver. If I'm yeah. being vulnerable with you, I'm imme- I'm basically trusting you with this precious thing or this thing that's close to me or whatever. And so people that receive that immediately feel trusted. So they feel like they have a little bit of responsibility to kind of like respond in a certain way and take this in, respect this moment or whatever. And obviously, like you said, it can be overdone and you can fake. And I mean, people are pretty good at like, smelling the fake because fake vulnerability is pretty easy to detect but some people sociopathic are very good at these type of things right and they know how to push and pull these buttons and, and levers up and down to really get certain response like you mentioned theranos you mentioned the fire festival thing yep. like that's what they're doing they're playing on the chemicals slash emotions of humans using stories and other techniques obviously like even pickup and games stuff like that like right. you mm-hmm. have a lot of things that are using emotional triggers in a female for example to get a certain response that may or may not be on the up and up and up right there are plenty of people who can misuse exactly when you're talking about pickup or something like that we've discussed that plenty of times on the show Yes. Yeah. And I, and I think what it does as the founder, um, this is tough for founders because they see it as weakness. But if you do it in a way that's truly authentic mm-hmm. and you're sharing lessons and you're trying to help others through your sharing, it typically is seen as a strength. The mm-hmm. challenge is getting the confidence to be able to do that. I mean, there were things I didn't share for a long time. Like, you know, I got fired from one job and I had a hard time saying that to a lot of people for a while. And then, you know, I lost my first company, lost $7 million that we had raised. And so I didn't talk about that for a while, Mm. but now I talk about it openly because I learned so much and I wish I wouldn't have lost that money, but I'm able to share these things. So instantly people come up to me like, man, that's incredible. You were able to recover from that or thank you for sharing that. It's helped me in one way, shape or form. So that's a way to connect to what you're saying and, and emotionally connect because of that trust and because you're willing to go somewhere that most people aren't, it gives you an mm-hmm. advantage from that standpoint. Absolutely. So I think we should put a disclaimer. We do not condone using any of this powerful information we've shared on the podcast <laughs> yeah. for nefarious purposes. Make sure you do things to help humanity and those around you if you're using any of these techniques. And we're not liable for anything you do with this information also. Uh, so what? let's get into the book a little bit before we wrap up. We don't want to keep you here all day. But so the, the book is Start With Story. The Entrepreneur's Guide to Using Story to Grow Your Business. I'm about halfway in the book. So a lot of this can be used for not just entrepreneurs, 
right? Yeah. Like, have you thought about that or ran into that at all? Because like, I don't like to just bucket people that are only entrepreneurs and those that aren't, because I think that story is powerful from even a self-awareness perspective. We talked about this on the first show, the tripod with yep. Joel, like people just kind of knowing their story can really help you understand like who you are and what are you going it? like the golden thread, the golden thread. Thing? Yeah. Cause it's like, if you don't know where you, what's that saying in history? Like if you don't know where you came from or something like there's something, but we got to learn from our past and the more we can understand the things we've done in the past, the more likely we are to maybe make our future better than what we, the mistakes we might've made in the past. So I think it applies to everybody. I think story is powerful for everybody, not just entrepreneurs, but what are some of the primary ways to think about story so that people that maybe who have never thought about it, whether they're a business owner or they're an individual that they could start kind of tweezing that out and like maybe have some step-by-steps or some tools or anything like that, that, you know, the average listener could maybe utilize. Got it. So I focused on that niche because that was the content, you know, out of, out of the thousand videos I produced so far, 90% have been about or for entrepreneurs. Mm-hmm. So that became my, my ballywick. I want to say that's the place in the world. That's going to be my box. I'm going to play there. I'm going to mm-hmm. own that. I'm going to learn as much as I can about that. But if you look at the uses for a story and there's typically 10, I tend to point to. Ten, wow. So it's such as fundraising. If you're an entrepreneur mm-hmm. sales, I mean, who doesn't need help with sales? And not just for business. Any relationships, kind of your kids, mm-hmm. your parents. I mean, there's so many. I mean, sales is persuasion. That's the way I see it. It's yep. just persuasion. So, so the, using it for sales because nobody wants to be sold to. Right. People want to hear stories. Yep. And stories are a way for our Trojan horse for you to get your message, your sales pitch across without even knowing it. They drop their defenses down because they're interested in your story and they want to hear more. You can use it for convincing a significant other to do something. That's one thing I eat, eat better. That's you, you would not believe the amount of resistance people have in that I've seen that just don't even want to hear like that. Maybe they should eat this and not that, or maybe fasting would be good for them or whatever. Like it's amazing how much resistance people have to that and us persuading them to do even a little bit more is something we should all be doing. I feel like that it's a mission we should have, you know, if we really care about people around us, we should be trying to encourage them to eat better and live better. Point in case, my, the reason I got into fasting, my sister Linda had um, just hit a milestone birthday and she reached out to me because she'd had a number of health issues and she knew I was healthy. I worked out, I was really conscious about my diet. And she goes, I really want your help in getting into shape. She was considered obese by her doctor. She was on seven meds, mm. sleeping three to four hours a night, high blood pressure, depression meds, the shakes. She was also having serious problems with menopause. Mm. She was at that age. And so I helped her started working out, you know, five, five minutes a day, 10 minutes. And we started ramping up and I started working on her diet, started her on low carbs and a lot of other things. And then she hit kind of a point where she'd lost about 25, 30 pounds and kind of a plateau. And I've been reading about and hearing about intermittent fasting from Joe Rogan and mm-hmm. Tony Robbins and Tim Ferriss and uh, Dominic D'Agostino. And I was like, Linda, I think you should try this intermittent fasting thing. I've never done it. Everything I've told you so far, I think you should do it. And she's like, okay, let's do it. I'm like, oh, wow, shit. (laughs) She's like, yeah, let's do it. So I decided to do it with her, not because I needed to lose weight. I just wanted to support her. And it was awesome. It was hard for me. I I had always been a five five time I eat five meals a day type person, small meals, first thing in the morning and then at night, whatever. So it was really hard for about a month. But then once I got into it, my whole life, I up-leveled my health. Oh, yeah. And she went from seven meds down to one. She lost 40 pounds, completely off high blood pressure medicine, sleeping six to seven hours a night, 
cut her depression medicine in half. And the cool part about this, going back to what else can you use stories for? So she advises people in New Mexico about their investment plans for their 401ks mm. and for social security and what they should do and a variety of different groups. And she read my book and she goes, I think I can use my story to convince people that they should take better care of themselves. And I'm like, really? Wow, that's interesting. My sister's read my book. Number one, that's cool. Yeah. <laughs> and two, she's learned something from it. So she started telling her story and she would talk about it. She'd show pictures and she has this great before and after picture. Yeah. And but the thing that really convinced them, most of these people don't have a lot of money, right? They're just going to go into retirement and they've got uh, fixed income and stuff. Yeah. Exactly. Things like this. And she goes, she took the bag of the meds mm. that she used to take oh, yeah. on a monthly basis. And it's a bag, you know, just imagine a grocery bag about two feet tall with Jeez. the bag of bottles. And she took this bag with her and she goes, this is the amount of medicine that I would have to take every month. But get this, that's not what convinced people. She goes, I no longer have to spend out of pocket $150 per month on my medicines. And people came up and like, you saved $150 on medicine. Mm. <laughs> And I'm like, oh, I'm like, whatever it takes, right? Whatever it takes. Not to mention on food, you're eating two meals less a day or whatever. Yeah. You, like, yeah. I did the spreadsheet on that as a, I'm a spreadsheet guy. <laughs> I used to eat 110 times a month, just on average. So that means four meals a day, prep time. Now I'm down to 65 to 70 because I'm eating twice a day. Yep. And I snack every now and then. So better quality food. I'm eating more of what I want, yep. still healthy. I'm spending less time and less money and eating better. Yes. And I'm working out less. And I've, I'm, I dropped three percentage point on my body fat, fat percentage. And I was already pretty lean anyways. Which episode on the Ancestral Mind can people hear our full show on fasting? Yes, I want to hear Ooh, that. Uh, the Ancestral Mind. We go Mind, pretty deep into it. I think it's episode 26. Okay. I, we'll I drop could a, be plus we'll or minus one. We'll drop a link below. But you guys, to really get into the, the weeds on that, everybody should listen to that. Uh, and it's for me, I don't think it's optional for people. I talk about it as a first principle of health. A lot of people think of fasting and kind of as it became a movement as like a way to lose weight. Fasting is biology. Yeah. Fasting is your human body's way of repairing and recycling old cells and like preventing, staving off cancer and just doing all these things that it does. It's just amazing, right? So everybody should be fasting in some way. Um, it doesn't mean calorie restriction. So that's the biggest misconception. Real quick, before we move back to story, people think fasting is calorie restriction. No, you could eat the same amount of meals within a certain window and have a fast afterwards that's the, let's say 14 to 16 hours, or you could eat those same calories every two hours, your entire day. Right. And metabolically, they're going to be night and day difference. Mm -hmm. If you change nothing about the calories or the quality of the food you ate one with the fasting period is going to be miles better for you. And the one we're eating frequently is going to make you metabolically deranged, contribute to fat gain, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. Right. So Love definitely dive stuff. into that in the intermittent fasting show. Uh, it's just one of those things that like sometimes I take for granted because I've been doing it for so long, but everybody should do it. If you're not doing it, I mean, it can literally change your life. Back to story. So you got to three ways of using a story or maybe it was four before fasting took us off the rails. <laughs> so what were the other six ways uh, did, of using a story? Um, recruiting people. Oh, interesting. Okay. So not just for business. I mean, mostly for business or um, any, anything anytime, like organization, charity, church. There's a lot of ways you could use that. Yeah. Yep. Re recruiting folks, um, developing culture. Mm. So instead of, you know, lead by example, but also share stories of the example you'd like to set. Absolutely. Um, there's a famous example that Zappos uses about a woman. She had bought some shoes or I think a pair of shoes had been mailed to her and she called customer service at Zappos. 
And she said, um, hey, I, I want to return these shoes. I'm sorry. It's probably over the time, but my, my husband passed away. And the guy's on the phone like, oh, I'm so sorry, miss. Please, whatever it takes, we'll take care of it. Don't worry about it. Put them in box, no charge. We'll refund you everything along those lines. And then he took it upon his own reconnaissance or uh, just his own decision. He sent the woman flowers. He didn't ask. I've heard about the story permission. too. Mm-hmm. Yep. He just did it because yep. it was the right thing to do. Mm-hmm. That Zappos story empowers their employees to do that kind of thing. Yeah. So as you've heard that story, many other people have shared that story. A lot of people haven't, but a lot of people, that story has traveled and traveled. Yep. It's a true story, but that's helping set the culture and the mindset that you're empowered as an employee representing Zappos to do what you think is the right thing to do. So refund them, send them flowers, take care of them. Go the extra mile. And, yeah. and they're going to talk about you for life, life along those lines. Yes. There, there's a funny thing about story that we don't realize this. And it goes back to why it's so pervasive in society. When you were conceived in the womb, from that point on, you're going to hear stories because your parents, when you're in the womb, told you stories. Hmm. When you're born, your parents, your babysitter, your grandparents, anybody taking care of you, read you stories. When you go to school, kindergarten, preschool, all the way up to high school, stories are part of your curriculum. Grad school. I heard stories in grad school. I still went, the only book I remember from grad school is called The Goal, and it's an operations book. Of all I literally things. just bought that and started reading that. Yeah, by Goldbat. And it, I remember the story. You know, and it's a long time ago from grad school for mm-hmm. me. And he teaches operations principle. One of the key principles, uh, they go on a, a hike with their kids and he understands a throughput issue because there's this guy named Herbie who's heavyset and couldn't keep up with the rest of the group. And it kept slowing down the entire I group. literally just listened to this the other day because one of our last guests, Scott Simmons, he said he doesn't read much. He's like, but the one book I remember was the goal. And I bought an audible and they, so they voice acted and everything. And that scene you're talking about is they're hiking and it wasn't a boy scout thing. Yeah. They're like hiking. Scout, yeah. 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 Herbie. And I, <laughs> but, but think about that. I remembered that. I even remember where I was when I read that. I was literally walking down the domain down here when that scene popped in my head. Wow. Right. I also remember where I was during nine 11, right? right? Like those very, those very kind of important moments. Like you visualize your scene. And I mean, I think most people, any story they have in their life, they can probably visualize a lot of what yeah. happened because, right? it's because it's tied really, to emotion be, and it creates like a vision in your head. Like, mm-hmm. you know, so, so the, the point I was bringing home with that is that after school in your professional life, especially nowadays, who are we taught about? We're not taught about generals or political leaders or even movement leaders. We're hearing about Elon Musk, Oprah Winfrey, Richard Branson, Steve Jobs still. Those are the people that we're hearing about. In your entertainment, what do we do? We watch movies, we read books, we watch television. Stories are all around us our entire life. It's how we interpret the world, it's how we remember things, and it's how we communicate. So when I always tell people, look, story is the most powerful asset you have as an entrepreneur because you control it 100%. You get to dictate. You were asking earlier before we started, like, I need help with my story and sometimes I'm not quite sure. I'm like, it's amazing. That blows my mind that a lot of entrepreneurs don't fully grasp that you have 100% control of the story you tell people. Because when you go to an event, what's the first thing someone says when you meet them? So what do you do? You're given a platform every single day Mm -hmm. to tell your story. And you get to dictate what you say, how you say it, who you tell it to, what energy level, and what your leave behind, what your hook, all those things is in control. And there's so many things we don't have control of as a business owner. 
There's very few things that we have 100% right. control over. So it's one of those things, man. Just it, it is worth the time, money, energy, and investment to create a great, compelling story that you can use over and over and over and have yourself a 15-second version, a 60-second version, a three-minute version, a 10-minute version, mm. and an hour version. That's a good one. I like that. You want all those because you're going to be in a cab ride, in an elevator. You're going to be in a hour-long VC meeting. You're going to be on a podcast. You're going to have an opportunity at a pitch session. I've just, I've coached the Founders Institute. I'm a mentor for them as well as the uh, SKU, CPG, Consumer Package Give. I'm a mentor for them as well. And we give them three and five minute pitches every week. They get to practice their pitch. Now, a pitch is different than a story, but if you can integrate your story within that pitch, right. even better, because you're making that emotional connection to get them into the pitch. So uh, I get on my on my soapbox quite often when you ask about story, because I think it's incredibly powerful. Well, and so I was going to probably a, a good question to close on. What about people? Cause I run into this too. We have a resistance to sharing our story because maybe we should think we share it too much. Now, of course, like you have things like scarcity mindset, abundance mindset, the world we live in today, there's almost no way where you're not, you're doing too much. Like people that say, don't post too much on social media. It's like, well, only 10% of my stuff even gets viewed. So why would I be posting as much as I can? So that's topic for another day. But I've run into people, we've had a couple on the show even, where they feel like they're saving their story for something. Like they're going to like one hit wonder later on or whatever. They don't want to like overuse their story. And I think intuitively I know the answer to this, but maybe some insight to even help me be more willing to share. Cause like in those cab rides, like I'm not getting to my story. Like people might ask me and I just, I know the way I am. I just like, yeah, yeah, I started this company. Like I just, it's very hard for me to open up. They have to like really badger me to open up <laughs> to my story. Right. But I think I should take it as an opportunity. I should practice in those instances. Right. How can people think about their story as something that is just something they should really be bringing to the service? It sounds like as much as possible. Uh, so I love this question and it's because at the end of the day, if, if you have a good product or service, all right, let's make that assumption, is that by not sharing your story, you're not helping someone. You're missing an opportunity mm -hmm. to help someone that needs what you have. And in your case, you've got this amazing brand. And obviously, I'm biased because I have nine of your products on my counter right now. <laughs> um, I use it every single day. I make a green matcha latte that has four of your ingredients and I make a, a smoothie that has another ingredient. So I'm using it every day and I'm on, and because I'm intermittent fasting, I'm, my lunchtime is a very controlled meal and I work from home. So I know exactly what goes in there and mm -hmm. I know the ingredients. So mm -hmm. you have an opportunity every single time to share your story, to make a difference in someone's life literally your product or service can be the difference maybe in someone's life or death. Mm. I mean, I don't say that flippantly. Yeah. And you know, I have a big family and a number of my family has health issues and there have been instances where I've shared a video about intermittent fasting or a video about um, some type of illness or disease, or I think you should try this or like I'm huge into Dr. Joe Dispenza, and I show a lot of Cheryl, mm. his videos, a lot of people, and I think that has changed life. So the reason I, I harp on this is that you have a product that increases people's vitality and enables them to live at a, a better life. It can address health and wellness issues. So if I'm you and I'm in that cab ride and says, hey, so, so what do you do? I'm like, man, I'm so glad you asked that opportunity. I created this company called Wild Foods. And I did it because I just wanted to live 
a great life or something. I'm just mm-hmm. gonna throw right. words in for you. And it's because, and I'm really focused on making sure I had healthy ingredients and I love butter coffee and I didn't know that much about it. So I decided to get into it. I'd love to, you know, we just kind of shared just a yeah. little bit, of, a, a touch, a mm-hmm. tease, a taste of your story. And generally speaking, if you say it with that passion oh, and, yeah. and that and vigor, people are gonna go, wow, holy shit. Mm-hmm. And they may not buy your product, but if they liked your story, the probability of them sharing it with somebody else yes. is exponentially greater than if you just told them what you did. Because now that you have given them a gift, your story is a gift. Mm. Think of it that way. That's a good way to put it. That they can consume or they can go out and share with another human being. And that, I know, maybe not save their life, but it could have them lead a healthier life. And for, for me, what's cool, you saved me time. I don't have to go shop for a bunch of different products. Mm-hmm. I'm out of your turmeric pills, by the way. We got them coming in. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. We've I, been was, out I was hoping I'd come here to the studio. I'd walk away with uh, a couple of bottles. We literally, yeah. we actually oh, do have we, a couple of bottles over there. We, we have a bottle. Holla, so holla, we're going to trade holla. you for a book. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have to decide where I'm going to shop for my product. You yeah. saved me time. That that's I, part I used of the to story. Go on, I used to go on Amazon, dude. That's part of the story. <laughs> Seriously, yes. I would go on Amazon looking for the best rated product in turmeric. Yep. Before I learned that you guys had made it. And then the fact that you add pepper to your pill products, I'm like, most people don't realize you need to have pepper to activate it along with, with a, fat, yeah. a fat trigger. So now I don't have to go shopping for that. Anyway. that and that's part of the story. The part of the story was even when Amazon was a little bit more nascent with a lot of the supplements and products, like there's a lot of products on Amazon now, like you can get a lot of things, right? But you still have to do a lot of the searching. Like some brands will have a few products, some won't. Like it's hard to find one brand that you can trust that kind of has the full spectrum. So that was really part of the vision for Wild Foods. I was going online and I would like, there'd be like six different e-commerce sites. Some would like have smaller websites, some would have better websites, but this was like even before like Bulletproof was a brand or like any of the stuff that has happened since then it was really hard to find the stuff that I used and bring it together. I would pay shipping on like six orders, mm-hmm. right? This was before I was even priming things, wow. right? And I was like, what if there was one brand that had kind of like the, the staple that I used in my life? What if I just sourced those products and like started with that? I know that for me, I'm gonna use it anyway. So at the very least, I'm gonna have bulk product for myself, right? And that, that's literally what we started with. I had 40, 20 kilogram bags, which is 44 pounds, of these bakery bags of grass-fed whey protein. <laughs> no way. Yeah, that would, I remember Rainy oh Street God. on Austin, yeah. on Sky House, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. On the like 10th floor, I would get home and FedEx had delivered eight of these bags sitting out front of my door. <laughs> and I would just like take them out, I would like pull them inside. And I started bagging them up one at a time, selling them on Amazon. And that was like the first product. That's how we got started. And then we launched like product to product to product. And I've told this story before, and it seems like every time I go to the bakery bag story product, like people really visualize it. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's a very powerful story, but I don't use it enough. I know for sure I don't use it enough. Like it's it's not in our emails. Like it's usually only if I happen to be talking to somebody and we get into it, do I go into it. So it's like definitely something that I should be utilizing more. So think of it this way: going back to spreadsheets, I have a matrix for stories based on audience situation, interest, product. So I have different stories based on what I'm talking about, mm. who I'm talking to, and what my objective is. And it's just the table, yeah. columns and rows. And I'm like, okay, yep, it's not simple like that. With everything, the richness of the content you have and the umbrella of the story architecture that you're building in this company, I, I would build that in a heartbeat because every podcast you should be telling a story. Every time you're out there talking. like I know, you've given me a lot of things to add to my to-do <laughs> list, Lynn. So thank you for that. <laughs> uh, one more point on that. Yep. So what's the popular bone broth company? 
Uh, ancient Nutrition. Not Ancient It's like KB, KB, I don't know, one of them. I was going to Picnic on a regular basis, the, okay. the restaurant Picnic. They had been trying to push bone broth on me for a long time. And mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, yeah, whatever. It wasn't my thing. I'm like, the taste was cool. Mm-hmm. I just, okay. Yeah. Nothing. And they kept pushing on me and they told me the story behind it. I'm like, that's cool. But I did remember the story and why they started and things like that. It wasn't there. It was a product that the salesperson there. But then one time my dog got really sick mm. and a severe case of arthritis attacked him. And I was bummed out. The vet's like, yeah, you got to take all these pills, everything else. And I told my sister about it. She goes, oh, you should be making bone broth and then put it with some rice and everything else. It really helped my dog. So here I'd heard about bone broth for two, three years, never Mm. Never thought about it. She mm. told me that story. I remembered that company that made that bone broth that sold at Picnic. I went over to Picnic. I bought bone broth back to my house, gave it to my dog with some rice. He started feeling better in a week mm. or two. And it's because I remembered that story that my cigarette sister had triggered with me. Mm. And it may not be right away. It's yeah. like this thing that keeps living. It's this gift. Think of it that way and it can be a powerful. Well, I feel like life. also it seems like stories are a way to really implant a seed in people's brain. Right, like if you want someone to remember something, maybe it's just you. Like if you just want to network with people, tell them a freaking story. They're gonna remember that guy that told me that story. Like they're gonna remember you versus just like, yeah, I work in sales, I do this, whatever. Like stuff that people just forget. Right. So I think that is universally applicable to everybody. And this show has been pack loaded with stories and a lot of really awesome content. Um, I'm looking forward to actually re-listen to this myself when I'm like walking outside the domain or something. Uh, but so go learn more about Lynn at storytellingforentrepreneurs.com. Yeah, right? that's it. And then you can find the book on Amazon, I assume. Yep. And it's Start With Story, The Entrepreneur's Guide to Using Story to Grow Your Business. Guys, I highly recommend this, whether you're an entrepreneur or not. We will have Lynn back on the show for book two and three and maybe to, to wrap up some other things. Like, let's get those second book, that second yeah. book out. <laughs> Yikes. <laughs> so, uh, Lynn, thanks for coming on the show. And is there any call to action or anything you'd like to, any place people can find you, anything you're trying to, you'd like to promote? Um, I'll tell you, I'm launching an online course okay. called How to Create Your Story from Scratch this October. Awesome. Um, I'm going to do a small little workshop immersion here in Austin before that to kick it off. But uh, really, I want uh, people to have the ability to learn everything I've been focusing on for the last decade about how to create a story from scratch. So if you're looking for that, you can buy the book as a good primer. And then when the course comes out, you can get the book on steroids because that's what it's going to be. So let us know. Let me know. I'd love to email our audience, support that any way I can. Maybe we can do some content, collaborate in some way. And let's also get you up to the coffee shop. And we still, have you been in there yet? Oh yeah. Yeah, I've been there twice. I I took one of my clients there. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. So we should do like a meetup there and do some content sometime. Maybe do some storytelling. And and I'm waiting to do the, uh, the wild foods, amazing video one day. Yeah, I know that's still, We'll talk. We'll talk. After, we hit, after we stop, <laughs> stop recording. <laughs> All right. So guys, make sure you like and subscribe. Send us feedback to what email are we emailing today nowadays? Let's just do the Wild Foods email because I think we, this will actually go on a Wild Foods podcast as well. So info at wildfoods.co. Okay. Feedback, suggestions, anything you'd like to let us know. And you can find Lynn. What, what are the best social places to find you? Um, I'm typically on Twitter and Facebook the most. No, actually, I, I, I'll tell you the thing I'm most active now is on LinkedIn. LinkedIn. Okay. That's my so most active place. L-Y-N-G-R-A-F-T. Yep. Okay. Got it. All right. Appreciate you having me. This is just a quick reminder that the members of the Living Wild podcast team are not medical professionals. They are not doctors. They are not nutritionists or dietitians. They are here to provide entertainment for you and give you a perspective on 
their thoughts and their feelings. So please, before making any radical changes in your diet, do your own research and also consult a licensed medical professional and stay wild. Just-